All right, well, I want to start by setting the context and defining some terms so that we're on the same page kind of out of the gate here. And I don't think that these definitions are controversial in and of themselves. But through the years, as we've reasoned through things in doing political philosophy, we've come up with some neat categories that I think are helpful. Um, but I'm just going to really dive into some sort of um, some, some foundational definitions. On one coin, we have statism. This is basically the belief that there ought to be a state apparatus in society. And to be clear, at the most fundamental level, a state is a claim on the right to have a monopoly on coercion and violence within a particular geographical area. And the way that this works out is that we usually think of the state as having a monopoly on law ratification and law enforcement. And on the other side of this coin, we put the terminology in more economic terms, but it's, but it's all one coin. And so the other side of the coin is socialism. And socialism, simply defined, is state ownership or control of the means of production. So statism and socialism are inextricable. They necessarily go together. If you have a state, you have an organization that exerts power by force in order to own or control the means of production. Another way of saying this is that the state and whatever goods or services it offers, it does so on the basis of monopoly by force. So for instance, if you wanted to start your own free market policing service, you would be shut down by the state almost immediately. That's just an area where you're not allowed to compete. So the state owns the means of production for that particular good or service. Now on another coin with mutually exclusive claims is libertarianism, the view that there ought not be a state apparatus in society. So libertarians believe in law and law enforcement, but the other side of the coin for them is capitalism, the belief that people have the right to offer all goods and services on the free market including such things as law enforcement. And all of those exchanges of goods or services should be voluntarily exchanged. In other words, there's no need for anyone to have a monopoly by force on anything. And to the extent that there is, it is immoral. Okay, so those are the basic foundational categories that we're working with. And I don't think that there's any controversy about the definitions themselves. But as we start a theological discussion on the topic, we need to take our categories, our definitions, and ask what God intended pre-fall. God created the world. He set man and woman in it. He commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion on the earth. But being fruitful and multiplying would necessarily complicate society in a number of ways and the different um, scenarios that mankind could find themselves in. And so we should ask this question, did God design the world to have a state pre-fall? Was a state necessary pre-fall? Now, the way that you answer this question reveals that this is really a fork in the road with practical consequences now. If you're a libertarian, you have to be prepared to argue that the nature of God and the nature of the world he created is set up for free exchange of all goods and services. And if you're a statist, you have to be prepared to argue that the nature of the world God created is in its very essence socialist, to some degree at least. That there must always be a threat of force in central planning, or there must always be a threat of force to not compete with certain goods and services that the state has assumed. And I'm not saying any of this as an irrelevant theological or philosophical hypothetical problem. 
which fork in the road you take will have put you on an eschatological road, a road that is working you toward something. So whatever we're doing now with our political theology, it should be consistent with the nature of the world God created pre-fall, and it should be consistent with the world that God is reforming now after the advent of sin. And I'm going to move on to the theology, but keep this foundational context in mind, and we'll circle back to it. Let's talk about systematic theology for a moment. So, uh, very basically, systematic theology picks a topic, say the holiness of God, and then looks up all the Bible verses that deal with that subject, does all the proper hermeneutical work and word studies, and then pops out a paragraph or two, or a book or two, that pulls it all together in a tidy summary of the holiness of God. So likewise, men ask that old question, what is God's moral will in regard to the role of the state as expressed in scripture? And they look up all of the verses and on the other end pops out a summary of the role of the magistrate or the state in scripture. And then from there, application is made. And systematic theology is wonderful. It's a necessary approach. You have to take that approach to studying anything well in scripture. But remember the days when you first became a Calvinist, if you were anything like me and you're arguing with your friends about some hot topic like the doctrine of predestination and you throw a verse at your friends and then debate and they throw a verse back at you and you debate and back and forth and back and forth throwing proof text at each other. And I wish that a wise person at the time would have pulled me aside and said, Jeremy, maybe a more effective approach would be to understanding the whole narrative of God's work of salvation. Know the overarching story, and under that context, maybe it'll become more clear how the doctrine of predestination fits in. And that's what biblical theology is and does. Biblical theology is looking at and understanding the multifaceted wonders of God's covenantal work in creation and reconciliation. The story of salvation is less like an encyclopedia and more like the great fiction of someone like Tolkien. If you want to understand what Tolkien might want to say about the concept of kingship, you don't just search every passage that says the word king in it. I mean, sure, do that, do, do the word studies, but what you really need to do in addition to that is read and understand the whole narrative. And the context that that narrative gives you may be the most powerful answer you were looking for. In fact, you may find you were asking questions in the wrong way or the wrong questions entirely. Okay, so now when we turn to the narrative of scripture, when we look to the story of God's plan of reconciling the sin for world to himself, we see that kingship is a steady flowing theme. And I wanna start off by establishing an anchor point for us, and it is this claim, that Christians are the true kings of this world. Christians are the true kings of this world. The, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers matured out of the Protestant Reformation in response to the tyrannies of the Roman Catholic Church and recognizes God's work of restoring the fellowship between man and God that was broken when sin entered the world. This priesthood grants every believer direct access to the throne of God and calls each believer to the work of claiming the world for Christ. And one primary biblical text used to defend this doctrine is from 1 Peter 2.9, which says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the verse says that believers are a royal priesthood. Not only does this verse positively affirm every Christian's high calling to 
priestly duties, but there clearly is a royal or kingly aspect to that calling that is backed up by other scriptures. And so I think it's time to further develop the doctrine of the kingship of all believers. Uh, the Apostle John specifically acknowledges that Christians have been made kings and priests, Revelation 1.6. Uh, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on this 1 Peter 2.9 passage where he exegetes the phrase priesthood of kings to be synonymous with, um, or uh, I said that backwards, he, he, he takes the phrase royal priesthood and says that's synonymous with a priesthood of kings. And I think his exegesis is correct. But where did this idea of a unified status of Christians as kings slash priests come from? Where did this idea come that Christians are little Christs, little kings? Well, I don't think that we simply should take proof text from Peter, Paul, or other biblical scholars down the line and build our theology that way. Rather, we use the whole of Scripture to unpack deeper theological veins that are the foundation of any particular proof text. So our anchor point is that we know that Christians are in some sense kings, but what is the story that gets us there and what does it mean? So we need to revisit the creation mandate. Starting at the beginning is a good place to start. Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I want to focus on this word for uh, dominion. The Hebrew word here is rada. It means to rule, to reign over, and there's clearly a very kingly, royal, not, uh, noble connotation for it. It's a word that's used extensively throughout the Old Testament. A great example is Psalm 110, verse 2, which says, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule, rada, rule in the midst of your enemies. But this concept isn't just that simple. It's as if it's really nicely connected to the command to be fruitful and multiply. So Hebrew words are often conceptualized with imagery. And the imagery in regard to Rada is like taking a big clod of dirt and breaking it down in order that it might be transformed into something else, pottery, a clay pot, or whatever. The word is used when Samson scraped the honey from the honeycomb. So scraping, rada, is an example of this transformative and noble work that man is called to. So at the beginning, we see that mankind was created to act as kings in the world. And what is the nature of that kingship? Well, it's, it's taking dominion. It's transforming things into more valuable things or into more things. And of course, we recognize that God is the ultimate king over his creation, but we see that man, as being made in his image, is to act kingly. The human race has nobility baked in. And then, of course, we come to Genesis chapter 3, which explains the fall and the promise that God will set all things right again when he tells the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so the fall doesn't cancel out the dominion mandate by any means, but it made it a lot more difficult. Adam and Eve grasped for further royal characteristics, knowing good from evil. Discerning good from evil is a kingly attribute, and they did this grasping wholly outside of God's timing, and they were cursed because of it. Okay, so what's the next high point in this developing biblical narrative in regard to kingship? Genesis 14 revolves around a seemingly obscure character and scene in the Bible. Abram had just sent out his army, 
to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive as the result of a, of a lost battle. And Abraham and his army are the heroes of the story. And at that point, the text says that King Melchizedek of Solom, who was the priest of God Most High, came to Abraham and blessed him by bringing out bread and wine and saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered enemies into your hand. And then after the blessing, Abram, Abram gives a tithe to King Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And that's it. That's, that's all. That's the short and sweet account of the man named Melchizedek, whose name means king of peace, Hebrews 7, 2, who in one man was joined two offices, king and priest. And we'll be coming back to this. But first, I want to continue with the flow of the Bible. So in Genesis 17, Abraham is 99 years old, and God spells out the covenant he is making with Abraham. God says in verse 5 and following, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And a few verses later, he tells Sarah the same thing. Kings shall spring forth from you. Now, what I'm going to argue is that all of Abraham's true descendants are kings. So this isn't just saying that out of all of his descendants, that some will happen to be kings. You know, count the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. Out of all your descendants, won't it be neat that some of them are going to become kings? All of Abraham's true descendants are kings in a very real sense in this world. Remember our anchor point that the New Testament claims that we as Christians are kings. So I don't think that there's theological stretching here. Abraham's descendants are kings, priests, and as the covenant is expressed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And they shall be blessed through the kingly duties and priestly duties of Abraham's seed. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so pause there for a moment and put it another way. For as many of you as were baptized into the anointed king have put on the anointed king. And then continuing, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Christian basically means, and, and Paul is, is spelling out what, what being a Christian means here. It means little anointed king. And as sons of God, Paul argues, we're Christians, sons of God. We, we see that this fulfills the promise to Abraham. Moving from the covenant with Abraham to the covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this chapter is the essence of God's covenant with David. He's, he's issuing promises to David. And verses 12 through 14 says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. So God is going to establish the seed of David's, that is Christ's kingdom, but more than that, the context of God issuing these promises to David is David wanting to build a house for God. God has been with the people, but it's been intense. David wants to build a temple, and God says Christ will build the house for God's name. 
Okay, so what, where, and how is this house? It is where God dwells with men, and today we know that the house has become the people of God themselves, those who have been baptized in his name. We are the house for God's name, we who are kings slash priests. The spirit of the king lives in us, and so I'm not sure how this union with Christ, carrying his spirit, makes us anything less than kings and priests as co-heirs with Christ. Psalm 110, a great messianic psalm about the justice and judgment that Christ will bring upon earthly rulers, and who is going to help him do this? Verse 3 says of Psalm 110, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be, will be yours. So we are going to be with Christ in this activity. We will be in holy array, holy garments with Christ in this, and what kind of holy array? Well, the word here for array is hadar, which means beautiful, dignified, honorable, majestic, glorious, noble array of splendor. In other words, royal attire. And when are we doing this with Christ? Well, I would argue that we're supposed to be doing this with Christ now. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here's Melchizedek again, whose name means king of peace or my king. And this union of offices of priest and king is, a, is applied to Christ. And still more on this later. As we wander along through the Old Testament following this theme of kingship, I want to make a comment about Proverbs. The whole book of Proverbs is a training manual for kings or princes who are becoming kings. And it's written for us to all who are little kings, that is, Christians. And Proverbs is obviously full of practical application that if we put it into practice, will look like, I think, rather extreme self-government. Because who do kings answer to? They answer to the law, the law of God. But otherwise, they're kind of at the top of the human chain in, in matters of authority. Now, there's much to say about this in the prophetic books, but I want to key in on Jeremiah chapter 31 and the promises that will attend the new covenant. And we talked a little bit about this um, in the Q&A last night, and, and we, can, we can explore it more later on if we want. We've seen that kings will spring forth from Abraham and Sarah. We've seen in the Davidic covenant that God promised to build a royal and priestly house for his name, and that's us. So it makes sense to follow this continuity through the covenantal context. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God will write the law, the Torah, on our hearts. Okay, you want ratified, codified law written down? Done. Okay, any questions? Well, maybe one. What's the content of the Torah? Well, to summarize, um, let me quote Paul from Galatians 5.14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so you might think that you want to steal something from somebody else. You might think that you want to uh, take someone else's life and murder them. You think you might want to look lustily after another man's wife and commit adultery. Well, guess what? You're guilty as charged. And why? Because the law is written on your heart. You're a king. With great power comes this great responsibility. And if you're a king, this is how it works. And I think that Jesus teaches us this. Now, turning to Jesus, 
He explains that there is a difference between the kings of the world, kings that are like all the other nations, and how Christian king priests should act. The rulers of this world use their authority to make their subjects slaves, i.e. socialism, I think, while Christian kings priests are to show the world what true kingship looks like, the kind of servitude that King Jesus showed. And this is from Matthew 20, 25 through 28. To put it another way, the rulers of this world rely on the monopolized power of the state apparatus, while Christian kings, priests, shine forth the golden rule, loving your neighbor, even dying for your neighbor. And the context here is an argument about who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when he's sitting on his throne. And Jesus does not deny that there is true power here that has true effect in the world. But he tells his disciples that they don't even know what they're asking for. They're asking for power like the earthly rulers have, and he tells them that their thinking is upside down. So in Christ's economy of the kingdom of God, I think the most obvious application is that Christians are kings of themselves with the law written on their hearts. And lending to this high calling of bold self-government is the fact that Christians will also judge the world and the angels. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. And Paul says there, you guys are going to judge the world and the angels. Okay, And, and remember Psalm 110, what we're going to be doing with Christ. And he says, and you want to settle your disputes in the courts of the state. And he says, act like kings for crying out loud. Christians are to rule themselves under God's authority, but they are also separating themselves from the monopoly by force on law and law enforcement by the state apparatus. Hebrews 7 finalizes for us a clear picture of the legitimacy of the union of the offices of priest and king. Jesus is the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he is the king of kings according to the order of David. And the writer of Hebrews is, is making the case for this and then concludes in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, saying, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So I hope you can see the commingling of royal and priestly language in that passage. And don't miss the reference to the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and its connection to the promise to David that David's seed, Christ, will build a house for God's name. Now, I think it's, it's tempting for us to think of the doctrine of the priesthood or kingship of all believers and not really realize how heavy and how real these responsibilities are. Besides establishing the fact that we are kings in some real sense, I hope that I've shown through passages like Psalm 110 and 1 Corinthians 6, that we are actively now in kingly work. Our weapons, however, in judging one another and the earthly rulers of this world are not with swords. We don't fight with those kind of weapons. We fight the way that Jesus showed us to fight, with love, self-sacrifice, all those things that look like foolishness to the world but are actually the wisdom of God. But it is with this overarching biblical theology, biblical narrative in mind, that we can properly look at the place of those proof texts, whether it's Deuteronomy 17, the instructions to future kings in Israel, 1 Samuel 8, when uh, Israel first asks for a king, the many statements throughout the Old Testament that speak either positively or negatively about the nature of kings, or Romans 13, or Peter later when... Um, 
um, later in chapter 2 when he tells the saints to honor the king. So rather than simply relying on a whole slew of proof texts to organize our discussion on these matters, let's look to the biblical narrative, find some agreement there on what it means, and discuss the proof text in light of it. But how can we have any discussion on government or the state or on politics without these truths being ever present in our minds? I think that, and this is where I think the argument, the theology leads us, I think that what we'll find is that the priesthood and kingship of all believers is not just some inconsequential fact that is neatly bound up in some book of spiritual truths that sits on a bookshelf in a library up in the heavens somewhere. There are real and practical ramifications for now. Our kingly duties are expressed in the dominion mandate, and they are broadened by rightly discerning between good and evil. And they are broadened in a world of sin to include such kingly attributes as seeing that the poor and downtrodden are cared for, and the disadvantaged are not taken advantage of any longer, for example. When it comes to the dominion mandate, the natural law informs us of the nature of the world God made and the nature of how humans reason and interact with each other. And this is where the study of human action, which is praxeology, which is just the natural law approach to understanding these things, guides us in understanding the economic motivations in the way that we interact with each other. And that includes the analysis of the institution of the state, the state apparatus. So if the natural law says that the state apparatus contradicts the natural law, in other words, if the formation and continuance of the state works against the nature of the world God made, then we need to submit to the natural law. So acting as kings in the world, therefore, boils down to three things for now. Acting kingly is obeying the dominion mandate and according to the natural law that explains to us how this is rightly done. I haven't spelled out that natural law reasoning here, but you may have guessed that I do not think it includes socialism. Acting kingly is recognizing that there is a very real antithesis between earthly rulers and heavenly rulers, and they are fighting over the same territory. And number three, because of the reality that we are true kings in the world, we are to act like it for crying out loud, like Paul exhorted the Corinthians to do. And this means not letting our fears of this world, and fear is not a kingly attribute, not letting our fears of this world direct us to joining the earthly ruler's use of political force in order to ease our fears. So, in conclusion, Christians are to act as kings and according to the kingly work they are called to in the dominion mandate. The nature of being fruitful, multiplying, and taking dominion is kingly and priestly, and I would argue is the natural law outworking of capitalism and voluntary exchange. The state apparatus that delivers us socialism, I believe, is a dying institution at the hands of Christ every bit as much as the institution of slavery is dying at the hands of Christ because it's contrary to God's natural order. And the more that Christians assume their own kingly duties and stop looking to the state as their nanny to protect them from their own fears, the work of Christ will show itself fulfilled in a glorious way. And that for sure is coming. And I want to finish by just uh, quoting from a hymn that I think that we're all familiar with and seeing at least occasionally, glorious things of thee are spoken, which says, Blessed inhabitants of Zion, washed in the Redeemer's blood, 
Jesus, whom their souls rely on, makes them kings and priests to God. Tis his love his people raises over self to reign as kings, and as priests his solemn praises each for a thank offering brings. Thank you.